always, always defer to my players. What do you want to run? You know, like in a huddle, you know, hey, it's a minute to go in the game. We need a bucket. What do you want to run? Because like if they don't have buy-in and ownership over that play, then you're asking for it. You think you know, you have the answers. I just don't look at it like that. I want my players input. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome Pacific Lutheran University head coach and coach of the year in the Northwest Conference, Chad Murray. Coach Murray is here today to discuss the benefits of working with the sports psychologist, breathing exercises at halftime, tagging the pick and roll, and we talk working the referees, play calling, and offensive rebounding during the always fun start, sub, or sit. For those looking to explore and grow this offseason, you can join coaches from over 30 different countries who've joined the SG Plus community. Learn and connect at your pace by getting access to thousands of hours of our best breakdown videos, deep dive newsletters, Q&A sessions, and inclusion in the private Coaches Corner community. Visit slappingglass.com for more information today. And now, please enjoy our conversation with Coach Chad Murray. Chad, thanks so much for joining us this morning. We're really excited to talk to you. Thank you, guys. This is an honor for me to be on your podcast. It's great. Thank you. Appreciate it. Congratulations on a great year. You were just named the coach of the year in the conference. So well-deserved. And we're really excited. We get a chance to snag you first for uh, an interview. (laughs) Appreciate that. (laughs) No problem. Hey, so one of the things that I know you and I have talked about in the past and that we thought might be an interesting place to start the conversation is things that you've learned and that are important to you now that maybe weren't important to you five, 10 years ago, or vice versa, things that aren't important anymore that were really important as you were coming up as a younger coach. Yeah, definitely. I've been a head coach now for 13 years and I can't believe how much my mindset has changed, you know, just in terms of what you just asked in terms of what I think is important, you know, for my day to day. First thing I would say from my own standpoint is my mental health, you know, and just how to deal with being a head coach. And I know people may say, well, you know, it's just division three, there's not as much pressure, but you guys know this, we put more pressure on ourselves than anybody can put on us outside of our program. We want to be great. We want to win games. We want to have great relationships with our players. And that carries a lot of burden, you know, and so that has become something as I've gotten older, you know, I've tried to continue to focus on. Also having systems in place for things like, you know, we talk about having a defensive system, offensive systems, a system for substitutions, accountability systems, leadership systems within your program, those types of things I think are really important. A quote that has resonated with me was by a guy by the name of Tim Kite, uh, Focus 3. And uh, he says, average coaches have quotes, good coaches have a plan, but elite coaches have systems. And, you know, systems to me are just meant to handle things for when you're not around, you know, and that goes into culture. You know, obviously culture is a huge, important thing. I, I think I knew that before, but even more so now. Coach, you brought up a lot of really 
good avenues to talk about here when you talk about things you've learned. But I wanted to ask you about the mental health part for a second. And it was a slow process for you or was it one specific incident? How did you get to the point where that was something that became more important for you as a head coach? I think it definitely goes to the relationship piece of things. You know, you get to the point where you feel like it's all about winning. Now, again, don't get me wrong. We all want to win. Like winning matters. It's important, but it can't be the only thing. And so when it becomes the only thing, that's when I think your relationships suffer and you kind of just lose your way, you know, on things. And some of the interactions don't matter as much to you as they should. And I got to the point where I got tired of having to apologize to my players the next day for saying something to them in the game that they took what I thought was wrong, but you know, it was just, it was biting or it was maybe demeaning. And I got to the point where I just like, I got to level off emotionally. Like I can't let this matter so much to me that I end up losing my cool on something and really fracturing a relationship that's very meaningful to me. You know, so it was, you know, just something that became more important as I went on. And I'll tell you, the less I focus on winning, the more winning I've been able to do. It's, you know, and and the more focus on some of these other things that truly do matter, that do move the needle, you know, it's been really eye-opening to me. Chad, you mentioned that you've learned to kind of cool off or, you know, if a player does something bad, not to blow up because you were tired of apologizing the next day. Did it just come with maturity or is there some sort of practices or how do you take yourself out of that moment and kind of remain level-headed when it happens? Yeah, Pat, it took me almost getting fired. Okay. It took a conversation in my athletic director's office, basically with him telling me, hey, I think we're going to go in a different direction. And I basically fought for my job a little bit and asked for an opportunity to try to change And he said, can you do that? And I said, you better believe it. Yeah, I love coaching. And it kind of came to the realization of like, I don't even know what I'm doing. Like, let me have this opportunity now that you've provided me with some awareness because I had zero self-awareness, obviously. Let me use this opportunity as a starting point for me to grow. And so it's sort of like your ass is on fire. It caused you to to do something about it. (laughs) And so my ass is on fire. And so it was like either change or just leave the profession. And I didn't want to do that. I had invested too much to do that. So, you know, I just did a lot of work that off season and really it's been a 10 year process, but it really started about three years ago when I was here out at PLU, it got to the point where I realized that I needed some help with that. And so I just made the investment to hire a sports psychologist to work with me, you know, just on my own emotional balance in a game. I just wanted to stay level in games and not let referees get to me too much. My players will say they still get to me too much, but <laughs> I think I'm a lot better. And I've had other people tell me that too. So maybe the refs don't think I'm much yeah. better. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> referees, your people too. I understand. But who cares what they think? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it really has been a game changer for me. She's taught me mindfulness. She's taught me about some of my triggers, trying to think about and visualize do some imagery through those triggers just so that I can identify those things and so I can work on those things in my mind beforehand so that when it does happen in reality that I can remember some of the techniques that she's taught me. You know, it's all about breathing and, you know, taking good deep breaths and staying present. And it's just been a really cool uh, journey, but, uh, and it's something that, 
you know, we've taken from my own, you know, work with her. Now we work and she works with our team. And so there's a lot of things. It's amazing when you get down to it, when you talk to your players, they're going through the same things I am. It's, it's just a different context. They have negative self-talk just like I do. They have confidence issues just like I do. When I can kind of level it off and be like, hey, you're dealing with some of the things that I'm dealing with and we can relate to each other. And that's when you really connect with guys. So I think that that has been a game changer for us in our program over the last three years. Chad, just piggybacking off that, the vulnerability of sharing that kind of a relationship with a player, I think can be scary for a coach to think, well, is he still going to listen to me? Is it, can I still coach him? Do you feel though, like that vulnerability piece has helped you get to a deeper level coaching some of these guys? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I think when you go from being an assistant to a head coach, you'll automatically feel like you have to know everything. When you're an assistant and you move to being a head coach, what I did was I, I had pressure to make it seem like I had all the answers. When in reality, that's not the case. You don't have to be like that. It doesn't have to be like that. You can say, hey, I don't know the answer. Help me come up with it, which presents more buy-in from your players, more ownership, which then gets you further down the road than you would get if I'm the only one making those decisions or coming up with whatever ideas that I have. You're only going to go so far. So it's very limiting. And so... The more vulnerable, and again, as I've gotten older, I've gotten more sappy, you know, with my emotion, like, I, you know, like every once in a while, I'll, I'll get choked up when I'm talking about something I'm super passionate about, or, you know, we got a big game coming up and, you know, everybody knows it's meaningful. Well, why can't you just tell them what this means to me personally, you know, in my coaching journey, that's okay. You know, and so we do a lot of things to bring out that vulnerability, not only just with just trusting that I'm not going to be judged for it. But then also just for the, for our players and just giving them the environment that they can feel safe enough to share some of their thoughts and feelings on what's going on in their life or, you know, their past or, yeah. or whatever. Chad, really great stuff here. I'd love to ask you, you talked about in-game with, you know, working on managing your emotions and all that in-game. I think the other really hard part about coaching is the before and the after. And is there things that you've worked on too as a coach to, you know, that two or three hours before a big game is brutal or coming off of a either tough win or loss where you're trying to then settle back down, get some sleep, refocus for the next day. Are there things that you've gotten in place and gotten better at that kind of help with the before and after as well? Yeah, definitely. So before the game, and this is kind of gets back into the question of what matters to you now. So before the game, I have my own pregame routine. So the guys will go out and they'll do the pregame warmups and stuff after we've talked to them. And I'll do a breathing exercise or I'll do an imagery or I'll pray just to get my mind right. And my sports psychologist and I would talk about the timing of that. When do I want to do that? You know, when is it most beneficial for me? And you just kind of like find a rhythm, you know, of things. And so if my rhythm gets disrupted, then I kind of feel a little out of whack. We do breathing exercises as a team prior to the game, like prior to my pregame with the team, we'll do a breathing exercise. Then when we come in at halftime, instead of like tearing the paint off the walls, right. And going in, you know, guns blazing, we'll breathe for a minute, just breathe. And so what it does is it lowers my level it lowers their level a little bit. And it just allows us to just be calm and have a conversation rather than me shouting at them or whatever. And then like after the game, 
I want to keep my post games as short as possible. And I've heard that from really good coaches where it's like life changing to them. And I've heard Chauncey Phillips talk about it where he doesn't even address the team after the game because he, he doesn't want to say anything positive or negative that he's going to regret. So he wants to watch the film. He wants to just kind of let his emotions like diminish so that he can be a little bit more factual with his players. And I'm not very good at that. I put my assistant in charge of a two minute clock and I've gone way beyond that. I've blown through that many times <laughs> because again, I do think there is a place for emotion in this, in this whole thing, you know, like you got to play with emotion, but you can't play emotional. And so you have to coach with emotion, but you can't coach emotional. And a, a very good mentor friend of mine who I just love to death. is like a father figure to me told me you're not a very good coach when you're angry. And I remembered that for years, told me that like 10 years ago. And I've always kind of thought that now, again, am I 100% successful at that? No way. No way. Any coach would lie to you. That's what they said. But it's something that I've become more aware of. And so those are kind of some of the things I'm like, man, when it's a bad loss, man, I'm fighting the imposter syndrome. I'm fighting the negative self-talk. I'm fighting all of that stuff. And you know, just with some of the simple things that I've learned, you know, just through reading and through my sports psychologist, it's a constant everyday fight. Chad, with the team pregame breathing, how early before the game do you do it? Is there a sweet spot? Did you guys experiment where oh, that was too early? It was too late? Yeah, we have. That's an awesome question because it is a work in progress. So when we first started doing it, I would do the pregame And, you know, there's times in the pregame where you kind of want to get them riled up and you want to get them all excited, right? And so we would be doing the pregame and I would say something to them and they'd get all fired up and ready to to break, right? And get in the huddle. And they're like, okay, guys, let's breathe. And they're like, wait a minute. I'm at my height here. I want to stay at this level. But I'm like, okay, we'll breathe. And so they're like, coach, let's do it before you Mm -hmm. do your pregame. And so then when you do get us fired up, we can just pop out onto the court and we can use that energy, you know, whatever. I've come to find out that the energy that I provide from my pregame speeches or whatever lasts about as long as it takes for them to get onto the court. (laughs) And so it's like not that big a deal, but if they want to do it, like, again, I want to work in partnership with them. I want them to feel comfortable with that. So we do it before practice. And again, they've, they've asked me, hey, do the breathing exercise first and then talk to us about whatever you want to talk to us about. And then we'll break and then we'll go into practice instead of flipping it around, you know, and doing the breathing. So yeah, it's definitely something we've talked about. With the breathing before practice, is it just to prepare them? So for the game, they're used to it, or do you find, does it have effects as well as practice? Cause I imagine not everyone's super hyped to go into a practice. Right. It's really what the breathing exercise does is it gets us present. Okay. It's in the moment. So you're breathing, you're breathing now, you're breathing, you know, at this very moment. And what I want them to focus on just for the minute is just the simple act of breathing. And so if they then can use that breathing exercise, maybe there's a a point in a game where there's a break in the game and something just happened that they didn't like, and they can't necessarily move from it to get present, you know, just take a breath. And then actually focus on the sensation of the breathing, you know, where, you know, in through your nose, out through your mouth, you know, however you wanted to do it. But it is the simple act of just trying to focus solely on that. But, you know, and then what we talk about is if a thought pops into your head, that's okay. Recognize it and then just move your focus back to your breath. 
And so it's, it's just a way for them to, again, put whatever distractions that they have moving into the practice, they've put that in the rear view, they're breathing, and now they can move to the next thing, which is just locking in on our practice. The halftime, you said that you guys breathe at halftime as well, yeah. correct? Yeah. <laughs> I think that's great too. I'm wondering though, if there's been times where like, you're just ready to rip them <laughs> at halftime, <laughs> but you got to stop and breathe, or maybe not you're upset with them, but let's say you guys are playing really well and the energy's up and you want to keep it do you still breathe and all that? Yep, you got to stay true to it. You know, I think it has to be something that's consistent, something that they can trust. Because if you think about like consistency, right? That's how you build trust is through consistency. And if I keep telling them, hey, these breathing exercises work, but we only do it once every four days or when I remember, because there is sometimes where I do get fired up about something and, yeah. you know, maybe perhaps I got this really good thing that I want to talk to them about and I'm excited to talk to them about it. And then I'm ready to get to practice. And they're like, coach, 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 we need to breathe. Okay. So that's when, Pat, that's when we flipped it. Yeah. So that I wouldn't forget, you know, like it, it's pretty much, it's on my practice plan to breathe, but it was something, actually, I asked them the halftime thing. Then I asked the guys, said, do you think that this would help us? And they're like, because I, again, I don't want to mess with their flow, you know? And they're like, yeah, let's try it. And so we tried it one time and yeah, Dan, there are times and not so much maybe this year, cause we had such a nice year where you do want to go in and you just want to go tear the paint off the walls. But yeah, it does give me an opportunity to level off because I just think it just doesn't work anymore. Plus you only have so many bullets in the chamber to do that. Like, in a season, you can't just come in and rip them every single time or every single day at practice, you got something that you're just tearing into them about. I mean, they just lose it. So I feel like maybe there was probably two times this year where I had something to say, you know, that was pretty intense. But I always knew, like, I was like, is this important enough to where I'm going to use one of those bullets? And then it's like, I asked my coaches and they're like, yeah, this is one of those times. And that, that gives me time. Like, it's basically hitting the pause button and saying, okay, am I really mad about this? And then you ask, no, I'm not really mad. Okay, then move on. Let's just keep going, you know, and let's not waste a bullet on that. Or yes, this is really important. Yes, this is a message I need to send. Okay, done. We'll go for it. Hey coaches, we'd like to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Instat. They have been hands down the biggest resource we've used in generating our content. Their expansive database of over 30,000 players and 7,000 teams gives us the access we need to scout, notice trends, and learn from some of the best coaches in the game today. So join coaches of all levels who are using Instat to better prepare for their opponents, self-scout, and develop their players. By going to instatsport.com slash form and entering the promo code SGPOD, coaches can receive one free month of Instat Scout and 10% off their subscription. That's SGPOD at instatsport.com slash form. Thanks again to Instat for their support. And now back to our conversation. Chad, this has been great so far. We want to transition now to some on-the-court tactical stuff with you. And I want to start with the pack line defense. And I know that's something that you've developed over the years to kind of make it your own uh, with certain principles that you've taken from other coaches, obviously, who've done it in the past. And so we'll start kind of broadly and then we can narrow in on stuff. So we'll start with the pack line, your principles with it and why you really enjoy teaching it. Sure. 
So, you know, when I first started, I, I remember I watched a Bobby Knight video on uh, his defensive <laughs> philosophies and stuff. And I was like, okay, well, you know, like I was always a man-to-man guy, never played or coached in a zone system. So I was always man-to-man. And then I just felt like pack line was a great system of defense for division three because it relied on team. You know, it was all five guys needed to be connected, you know, together. It was something that were, you know, like, I didn't feel like we were going to always have the athletes to be on the line, up the line, pressure all the time, press, you know, I didn't feel like we were going to be able to consistently get those guys on a year to year basis where I was. And so I was like, okay, I think we do pack and really just hone in on the team philosophy of the whole thing. And then as I went through, you know, each year, you know, at first I was like Dick Bennett disciple, you know, everything had to be like a hundred percent pack, you know, and everything. And then I would see other coaches and how they would manipulate it a little bit, you know, like fronting the post. There was a school that we went against in Wisconsin when I was at Cornell that fronted the post, but they were a pack team, but they fronted the post. And, and I was like, you know, that puts a lot of pressure on our backside help. But then again, that's another way to promote team and helping and being there for each other, you know, all that kind of stuff that I love. So, was, okay, we'll front the post. And so that was like the first thing. And then as I kind of went along, we're, we're talking about like ball screen coverages. And so it's like, oh, we hard hedge everything. Well, maybe not in the middle. Maybe in the middle, we'll flat hedge. Well, I see some teams that are packed, but then they switch a lot. Well, I don't want to switch. You know, like I want, I like the fact that I want to hold our guys accountable to a matchup. And so like, if I have a great defender, like last year, we had two incredible defensive players. And I not, we're not switching. <laughs> I don't want you to switch off of the other team's best player to a weaker matchup. Why would we want to do that? You know, just to make it easier for you. So let's toughen up a bit and let's fight through those screens. Let's give them the techniques and the skill set to be able to do that. Okay. Flipping to now more complex actions. I think one of the things is interesting to hear you talk about is your pick and roll coverage how that relates to you know some of the pack principles yeah. and also how you view guarding the ball screen on multiple sides of the floor. Yeah, definitely. So with our ball screen coverage, like on wings, so let's just kind of paint the picture. So we have a traditional wing ball screen where you're attacking the two side and you have a backside lift, okay? And so on that wing ball screen, we're going to hard hedge. We just want two slides just so we can get the guy more towards half court. We're going to go over the screen under our help and... Basically, as soon as the guard hears the screen is coming, we shift our feet so we don't give up a rejection. Okay. Now, again, keep in mind, this is perfect world situation here. It doesn't always happen like this. So <laughs> we want, you know, to deny a rejection. And so we get that hard hedge. We go under the help and we want hands up as soon as we clear the screen so that, again, that on-ball defender can try to disrupt the timing of the play because the ball screens are all about timing and things like that. Now, how we tag the roller is we do things a little different. So we, we will tag the roller from the bottom of the two side every time. So even if you're attacking the single side and you have a two side on the back, we'll tag the roller from the bottom of the two side. If it's an empty wing ball screen, again, yeah. it'd be whoever's lowest on that side. Okay. So most likely be a post player or something like that. So like, again, we're going in and attacking the two side. That person on the bottom of the two side is called the MIG. Most important guy. I stole that from somebody. <laughs> so, and then the guy that's guarding the kind of the nail help, that nail defender that's guarding the wing on the two side, 
haven't come up with a better name for this, but he's the I got two guy (laughs) (laughs) because he's got two. So while that low man on the two side is tagging the roller, the top man has to cover both those two positions, the deep corner and the wing. In order for him to do that, we have him drop on the line of the ball from the ball to the corner. So because of his body position, he's discouraging that straight line pass to the corner because you think, okay, well, if they're tagging from that position, then that corner man is going to be open. Lots of teams that have figured that out with us, how we do our coverages, that's fine. They will whip it right off the screen. They're going to whip it across and see if they can get us in a rotation and get us into a long closeout that either gets them a three or some drive to the basket. Again, if we can get our hands up, on the ball, we're going to disrupt the timing of that. and We can slow that down a little bit. So we've got help for the guy that's going over the top of the screen. We've got help for the guy that is doing a good job hard hedging. We've got help for the guy that is tagging the roller with the I got two. Then we just kind of figure it out from there. Now, the I got two guy doesn't have to take two if our MIG doesn't have to help on the roller because they're not paying attention to him. I tell them, our guys, read eyes, read eyes. Where's the ball handler looking? LeBron James doesn't play for Willamette University. The guy coming off the screen at Willamette or Lewis and Clark or whoever we play is not reading screens like LeBron does. Okay, so let's take advantage of the fact that we're at Division Three level and make them make a great play. And let's just take away the easy stuff that's obvious and then they can figure it out from there. And if they do, we tip our cap. You know, nobody throws a shutout in a basketball game anyway, so they're going to score at some point, you know, so that's kind of how it works. Now, the I got two guy is whoever communicates first is right. Again, I remember somebody on you guys' podcast said that, somebody from Europe, and I love that way of saying it. That's not, we're not trying to argue on the court here. So like, if I say (laughs) something, if if I say I have it, even though I might be incorrect in our system, I've got it. So like, do it. Just go and just go balls out, you know, and make that mistake going full speed and guys will follow you. And so the I got two basically is saying, you know, if he's got the corner, then he's going to get the corner. And then we rotate basically with just an X out. So the uh, MIG would then take his man at that wing spot. With the MIG, when do you want him to pick up the roller? Is he just waiting under the basket for the roller to come to him? Or do you want to pick him up? If they short roll, you know, what are you telling the MIG? Yeah. Again, great question. As high as possible without completely going, we don't want them to go too early because then we'll just skip to the corner, Yeah, you know, and then we're in a long closeout. But again, it's more of just a presence. We want that guy to be a presence. So we talk about hitting them at the logo, you know, so like a lot of times we'll have that, your conference logos and the paint, you know, at, yeah. at some point. So we try and touch them, you know, by the time they hit the logo. And I'll tell you what, guys, like a lot of times it's just like, is there a body in the way? Can this kid catch it and not charge into, you know, a guy? It's more of just like a deterrence to hit the roll man by having a body in Mm -hmm. the paint that prevents that from happening. And again, I think you see, man, just the way the game has gone, there's not a lot of hard rollers anymore. You know, every once in a while you'll get it if you just completely screw the coverage up. You know, you're going to see that, but man, catching it in traffic, I just don't see that a lot anymore. It's more pick and pop, short roll type stuff. Chad, with the big, after he's hedged and is recovering, 
What are the things that you're teaching him on the recovery? Is he recovering in a sprint with his hands up? Is he backpedaling? What is his job after he's hedged out two steps? Yeah, great question. So hands up, I talk about defensive back coverage. So when you're a defensive back and you're covering a wide receiver, sometimes you lose sight of the ball, but you put your hands up and, you know, invariably you may get a deflection. And so we talk about just trying to get a deflection. We're also listening to the MIG because if the MIG has to commit to helping on that role where he has to just go over and take him, then we're going to X out of that. It kind of depends. Sometimes you'll kick out the MIG if he has time to do it. Other times the ball goes in there. Obviously, he's not going to do that. He's going to need to sprint out to cover up for the I got two guy who maybe has covered up for the corner. You know, so it's like, yeah, you know, there, there is definitely some rotation that goes into that. And we practice that. I mean, like we practice, hey, you know, this guy is a good pocket passer. Every once in a while, we're going to get caught where he's going to he's going to be able to make that that pass to the roller. Okay, now what happens? And so then we're kind of like practicing, you know, when things don't go 100% according to plan. But we definitely want to maintain our matchups. And so like if we do get caught in a rotation where we have to switch up some of our matchups, we'll always look to switch them back at our earliest convenience. I really like this always bumping on the two-man side or the low two-man. You know, I think, you know, we talked with Coach Clifford, when you can have clear and concise rules, obviously it just helps the guys. But obviously your opponents know you're always going to be bumping from the two-man side low. What are actions or pick and roll locations that really stress always bumping from the two-man side? Yeah, I think middle pick and roll in the middle third because the spacing is a little bit, more compact and the pass is a little shorter coming off the ball screen that's in the middle third to that corner. Mm-hmm. And so like that has to be dealt with the flat hedge. You know, we kind of have found that when we flat hedge in the middle, sometimes when we're late on that, we end up in a drop cover and I just don't like it when guards going full speed downhill, you know, at our big, it just prevents all kinds of foul problems and stuff like that. And to be honest, like our bigs aren't really that big. And so it's not like they're rim protectors, you know, where they're a seven, it's a seven footer that you got to, you know, shoot over my guys are six, seven, you know, at, at best, you know, <laughs> so yeah. it's not that big a deal, <laughs> but yeah. So quick actions off of the ball screen. So like I said, once they clear the ball screen, they know where, where we're tagging from. So they're just going to try to whip it across some two side actions like flares and down screens while the ball screen's happening. So like in conjunction with the, the ball screen, they're running an action to kind of confuse the coverage. So they're okay. Well, if they run a down screen, who's the MIG, you know, like, or, or on this flare screen, the guys in the corner is moving up to set the screen. Who's the MIG in that situation. So we've kind of like, we've again, come up with within our system ways to deal with that. Could you, uh, if you don't want to give away all your secrets, yeah, sure. you know, how, how, how do you guys solve the screens or the exchanges, you know, and who's the MIG, who stays, who's got two? Yeah, that's a conversation that we've had with our players over the years. And we've kind of come up with once the MIG, always the MIG. And so like once you have a starting spot where, okay, I'm the MIG in this situation and I'm going to pretty much stay the MIG. Now, Dan, when you guys run your ball screen continuity mm-hmm. and you run that back cut through, yeah. You know, and then you lift the guy and then they go and sprint into that ball screen. Okay. That yeah. backside guy that, that cut through to go to the other side, we'll stop him and then we'll stop him from following that back cut. And he'll be the MIG at that particular time. But then when he, <laughs> when he gets swung to him, that guy's got to go. Like it is quick. That guy has to quickly get it tagged, get it taken care of. 
And then he's got to get, he's got to get over that ball screen, you know, on the other side. So that has stretched us a little bit, that version of your ball screen continuity type stuff. Yeah. That's been difficult. But so like back to the, the screening action on the, on the two side. So if they, if they set a flare, our MIG is always responsible for the inside player and the inside action. So if you're guarding a screener on a flare, he's the inside player. Most of the time, the cutter is going to be on the outside. It's going to shoot that three on the perimeter. So the top man, the I got two guy is always responsible for the outside cut. And so then if they pin down, that's when we would switch a screen. Oh my God, we're switching a screen, but that's okay. <laughs> in this situation, again, we're going to, we're going to deviate just a bit where we would switch that screen. So our MIG can then stay inside and then the I got two or top side player can stay on the outside cutter. Chad, great stuff so far. Want to transition now to a segment we call start, sub, or sit. So we've got some fun stuff prepared for you. So for those maybe listening for the first time, we will give you three different basketball-ish topics, ask you to start one, sub one, and sit one, and then we can have a fun discussion from there. So coach, if you're ready, we'll, we'll dive in. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm nervous about this one. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be fun. So uh, we want to start with something you actually brought up a little bit earlier. And so it's fun. It's going to kind of full circle here to start subset. But this first one has to do with working referees and talking to refs. Okay. Okay. So <laughs> start sub or sit, you feel like maybe the most effective, <laughs> you've seen the most effective way to get the referee potentially more on your side as the game progresses. So start sub or sit being Mr. Nice guy. The second option is being the, uh, the Bobby Knight where you're ranting and raving and throwing <laughs> stuff around and uh, kicking and screaming. Or the third option is the court jester where you're not really yelling and screaming. You're not trying to be nice. You're just making a lot of, you're really animated with your body movements and your stares and all that to get your point across. So start, sub, or sit, those three ways to uh, work the referees. So from personal experience, the Bobby Knight way is definitely not the way to get them on your side. <laughs> okay. No lie. In my first three years of being a head coach, I probably had 12 technicals. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, no lie. Seriously. Because again, that's what I thought, you know, like, yeah, I thought that that's what you did. You just work refs and you, you know, they're the adversary, you know, and stuff like that. Obviously, that's not the case. But so def that's definitely a sit. I think the, uh, I would uh, sub the court jester one um, just because I'm not the most clever guy in the world. It can probably come off fake at times, you know, like, <laughs> but I am definitely into self deprecation, you know, and stuff like that. So I'm certainly going to use that to my advantage at times. So he definitely has a spot in the rotation. But I definitely think, you know, killing them with kindness, I think, or, you know, or just basically like, definitely knowing their names oh man there's a time one one time i swear i thought this guy's name was one thing and it was, it was another and i'm like hey so-and-so and he's like oh no it's anthony and i'm like oh god i totally ruined it because i was gonna be hey that's a great call or hey just watch this or something like that but i think using their name is really important you know and it's like you can't do hey ref anymore you know that that kind of stuff Plus you see the guys, you know, multiple times, but I don't know what I was thinking. I was like, again, it was probably in the, in the heat of the game and I just yeah couldn't get it. And, uh, but he, he actually laughed about it. It was, he was really nice about it. And I also think like 
during the downtimes, the ref that you want to get after is always the one across the court. Yeah. And so you feel like you have to shout across the court and they hate that. Right. And so like you end up having to complain to the guy that's right by the bench. Well, he didn't make the call. And so he always says the line is, well, coach, that wasn't my call. I didn't see it. I wasn't looking at that. And my comeback is, well, you're standing here. So you're the one that gets to hear it. And then they always get a, <laughs> a little chuckle out of that. And, you know, I, I think if you can get them laughing and if you can kind of get in that banter, while I don't think they're going to give you a call, it, it makes you feel better about the whole process. Chad, in, in your experience, is there such thing as taking a technical for the team or taking a technical that then fires up your guys and like changes, <laughs> you know, changes the momentum? <laughs> Only to protect the coach's ego will okay. one say that. <laughs> I think that that is a bunch of baloney. I know my players would get super stressed out by that. It wouldn't be something that would help my guys at all. And maybe if you had a veteran team, I don't know, like if you had a bunch of guys that were just like juniors and seniors that kind of got it and understood kind of what was going on. But when do you ever have that? You always have young guys that are trying to find their way or I don't know, like... Yeah, I just don't think that that's yeah. true. How much of your or how you'll react with referees throughout the course of a game, how much of it has to do with what the opposing head coach is doing on the other sideline to the ref? So, for instance, if you see someone on the other side that's really working it and it feels like you're losing the ref's ear, how much does that factor into anything you may or may not do? Again, I think you're just telling yourself a story, you know, to try to justify whatever you want to say. And so like, uh, for me, I try to limit my interactions with refs, you know, to where it's like, okay, I get to perhaps or three, perhaps, or, Hey, I'm going to go to this four minute segment into the next media. And I'm not going to say a word to them. And I mean, my success rate with that is probably close to zero, but <laughs> at least it's something right. It's a, it's a goal of mine to have. And lots of times too, like if I get upset, especially if they're on the other end of the court and I'll just go sit down because uh, that's definitely something that when we go back, you know, we talk about the mental side of things. And for me, in order to calm me down a little bit, I'll just go sit. It's almost like putting me in the penalty box where <laughs> right. I, I have my assistants flanking me, you know, and so I'm going to go and sit right in the middle and then I'll just vent to them instead of the ref, you know, about something. And that goes, it doesn't necessarily have to be just, just be rest, but whatever's happening in the game could be, you know, what, what we're doing, what they're doing, whatever. I think, again, that's just an excuse to say, well, he's doing this or he's out of the box and here I'm my sixth defender, <laughs> you know, on the court all the time, <laughs> you know, I'm playing sure. defense on that guy in the corner, <laughs> you know? So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I've definitely seen yeah. that where you, you know, next day you see the scuff marks from the dress shoes on the court. Like this guy, he's like on three point line. And it's like, how did that happen? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Chad, just a little bit of a tangent on this from coaching against you, known you through the years. You actually do sit in the middle of your bench, correct? Yeah. You don't sit at the head of the bench. Right. Uh, can you explain that a little bit? You have the, your assistants on either side and you have players on both sides of the assistants, yeah, right? Yeah. So basically to me, that promotes that we're in this together, that it's not coaches are down here and the players are down there to where we, you know, we're two separate things. We're together. I'm right there with you. There's guys on every team that have a great basketball IQ. And I want those guys around me and I want them around my assistants on both sides. And then they can kind of determine how they want to do that. But there's a lot of times where we'll dictate, Hey, so-and-so you're sitting next to me right now. 
And I also think it promotes positivity because if I'm, if we're yeah. right there with the guys, we're not going to be saying, Hey, this kid <laughs> yeah. sucks right now. Like yeah. he can't do anything. Like, why don't we have him in the game? You know, this type of stuff. Cause even if he's on the court, his buddies are right there and you know, that's getting back to him. And so, and yeah. I mean, again, these are all things that I've done because I've had issues with them. You know, the snide comment, you know, and it also promotes positivity with the players because they're not bad mouth what we're doing right when we're sitting right next to them. Right. And so it eliminates, it kind of yeah. eliminates that end right. of the bench mentality where I'll just go, if I want to, you know, bitch about something that's going on in the game, I'm just going to go to the end of the bench. Well, you know, it's not that far away from us, so it'll probably get caught. Uh, again, that's yeah. something I stole from somebody that I just thought it was cool. And I've had multiple, multiple people ask me about that. And then it just gives me an opportunity to talk about our culture, what we're about, you know, all those types of things. And you can't argue with it. It's a cool thing to do. And again, it just makes us different. And it's something, again, it, it takes some courage to put yourself in that situation where you really have to be, you have to hold your tongue a little bit, but then you also just have to be aware and in control, you know, of your emotions. So it's just another accountability piece for us. Hey coaches, this segment of Start, Sub, or Sit is brought to you by our friends at Practice Planner Live. Practice Planner Live has combined all the components of effective, efficient, and time-saving practice planning into one easy-to-use platform, saving your most valuable resource as a coach, time. Ditch the Word docs and the scribbled legal pads for a simple point-and-click experience to build your drill directory, collaborate with your staff, and create clean, customized, and shareable practice plans in minutes. With over 75,000 practice plans created at the professional, collegiate, high school, AAU, and youth levels, Practice Planner Live is proven to raise the level of organization and effectiveness of any program. Listeners of the podcast can visit practiceplannerlive.com and register for a free 21-day trial and enter the promo code SGPOD to get 10% off your subscription. Thanks for listening. And now back to our conversation. All right, Chad, our uh, next start subsit has to do with play calling. And so the situation, the scenario is you just, you call the play, it worked, you had success with it. So start subsit, the next time down, do you run it till they stop it? We're just going to keep hitting them with it. Do you file it away and maybe sprinkle it throughout the game or just be aware that it's a play that will work? Or do you call a same play, but maybe a different action or a tweak, kind of hit them with the next step. Oh man, that's a good one. Well, first thing, when I call play and it works, I just, I want the nearest high five <laughs> because it's like, I feel so, I feel so good that I actually did something to help us score. <laughs> but then next, I think I've done all three of those things. So let's see, start, sub, or sit. I think it would be, sit would be tweaking the play. I think, God, I forgot what uh, the other one was. I know it was run it, run it to death. Yeah, until just kind of file it away and we'll run it maybe next quarter or yeah. two possessions later or you know, for the fourth. <laughs> that would be the idea for me would be to file it away, but then I'll probably forget and never run it again. So, but no, I think that would probably be one, you know, like a sit. And then I, I think I, I would go back to it. I would go back to it. Now, I don't go overboard because I do think, you know, at some point it was like, well, why did we score on that? Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, oh, you know, because we, you know, like invariably, the more times you run it, your execution is not going to be as great because they're just going to, you know, guard it a little bit better, you know, or something or, you know, whatever happened that caused the play to work 
they've been able to sniff out, you know, so I, I don't necessarily feel like you can keep running something over and over and over and yeah. over again. I think more so when that happens is you're just attacking a particular matchup, but I always talk to our guys about like making sure we attack matchups within the flow of what we do mm-hmm. instead of like stopping everything. Oh, we got the matchup we want. Now we're just going to shove it down their throats. Where in, I think in reality, I think you can get things when it kind of comes out in the wash where you're just kind of just doing your normal flow or you're just no, normal offense and you just kind of find those opportunities within the possession. Yeah, no, that actually kind of leads me to my follow-up. I guess on like the broader sense of play calling, you know, maybe going into the game or do you have a sense that it's going to be, we're going to look to attack through mismatches. Maybe we're going to look to attack through like tactical advantages, the way they defend something or kind of just play calling like, you know, let's just make sure our better players are getting the ball regardless of who's guarding them when or where. Yeah, I think it's the latter, what you just mentioned. It's more about getting our guys opportunities that we want to have the opportunities. Mm-hmm. Like, So, I mean, we had a second-team All-American this year, and I made a comment, like, I didn't know he was going to be second-team All-American. Otherwise, I'd have called every play in the book for him. <laughs> like, what am I doing? You know, like, I had a second-team All-American for the first time in my career. Shoot, the kid could have scored 30 a game as opposed to 21 a game. What am I doing? You know, so, but, you know, like, Pat, we're educated guessers. Yeah. I mean, we're just we're just guessing, you know, out there. I always, always defer to my players. What do you want to run? You know, like in a huddle, you know, hey, it's a minute to go in the game. We need a bucket. What do you want to run? Because like if they don't have buy-in and ownership over that play, then you're asking for it right there. If you think you know and you have the answers, I just don't look at it like that. I want my players input. I will defer to them all the time. I defer to my assistants a lot, you know, when it comes to that kind of thing, because man, I'm thinking about all kinds of different things. Maybe my one assistant is more offensive minded and he's got a suggestion for me. Why wouldn't I listen to him? Like, what am I doing? Like, what's he there for if I'm not going to listen to him? And then if it doesn't work out, I'm not going to (laughs) blame him. You know, I'm the one, I'm the one that made the decision. So, you know, I always need to take responsibility for that. I'm all about deferring to the players and trying to make sure that they're totally in line, you know, with what we're doing. Now we might have a discussion about, well, okay, well, what do you think about this? And I'll give my reasoning for it. And they're like, oh, okay, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, let's do that. And now it's their play. Yeah. Yeah. I would definitely go. I want to get my best players in the best spots, regardless of what the other team is doing. Chad, just my quick follow-up on this is in-game playing calling for you as a head coach. Has it gotten easier to call sets or plays while you're being the head coach and you're managing, I mean, there's a lot going on during a game that you're managing. And so sometimes, like you said, you're relying on the feedback of an assistant or your players. But have you kind of developed, you talked about systems earlier, like systems during a game for you to really have a sense of what's going on while you're doing all the other stuff as a head coach? Sure. Yeah, we had talked prior to the season about my assistants taking over the substitutions and they didn't really want to do it. And so um, with play calling, I don't know, I've always felt like a certain level of ownership with that. That's just something that I find it, it's fun to me, you know, to try to, to get that play executed perfectly. So then you do look for that high five, because I think it just boosts the energy when something gets executed well like that. That's just been something that's always been sort of my baby, but yet the guys always know if there's something that they want to run or my assistants know that if there's something they think that will work, just let me know and we'll do it. Chad, with having your assistants doing the substitution, you know, what, what are the conversations before the game or, 
you know, how does it work when you're going to put your assistants in charge of substitution? Well, we decided not to do it. So I don't really know when, <laughs> you know, like, so, when, yeah. okay. <laughs> next, next question. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, that's good. I'm sorry. <laughs> if you were to do it, what would be, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. we were to do it. Yeah. I, I think, um, now I will say this, I will say this. They have a better feel for whether a guy's tired or, they're constantly reminding me, hey, hey, let's get this guy in. Hey, it's about time for this. Hey, he's looking gassed. We need to get him one. Hey, do you want to get him one before the media? And then we'll get him back in. So they're constantly asking me. And so I kind of feel like they do have a lot of control over our substitution because, again, I'm going to defer 90% of the time. I'm going to do what they ask me to do. Yeah. Because, again, I'm trusting that they have a better sense of it than I do. Because, again, like we, well, like we talked about, I'm thinking about five other yeah. things at the same time. Sometimes I feel like I'm a little haphazard about my substitution yeah. um, where maybe if we had those guys doing it, it would meet more of like a, Hey, at 16, we're going to do this. Or at 14, we're going to get this guy out, you know, but I always felt like, gosh, the best laid plans always get thrown up in the air because, you know, somebody's in foul trouble or this guy's getting torched. You know, or we want to exploit a matchup or this guy's flowing right now. We don't want to mess with his, you know, like he's just hit two shots in a row. I'm not going to sell him out just because that 14 minutes. Right. Right. This plan in place. Yeah. You know, so I like to substitute based off field too. Chad, our last start sub sit for you. Thank you for going through with this so far, but this is fun. Okay. Last start sub sit has to do with tagging up. And I know it's something that you guys have tried to implement in certain ways throughout the last couple of years. So tagging up for those maybe hearing it for the first time, an offensive rebounding system of sending possibly all five guys to the glass. So this is the most difficult part about teaching tagging up. So start, sub, or sit. The start would be the most difficult part of it. All right. So start, sub, or sit. The discipline of running over the top every time. The transition matchups. So maintaining your transition defensive matchups or potentially not having the right matchup in transition but your transition defense or the last one is just the physicality that it demands on your guys to always go to the boards and to scrum in and to go hard over the top so start sub or sit the most difficult part of tagging up i would start the going over the top well actually can i say can i add one please that you didn't yeah so how about them just going to the glass, just yeah. remembering? How about yeah. that? Yeah. Like just <laughs> teaching them to remember to do it. And, uh, you know, constantly reminding guys and like tag up, tag up. And these guys sitting there watching his shot or, or he's sitting there watching the ball get tipped around when he could be, you know, at the, at the elbow or on the, on the nail or something like that. So I think the hardest thing for us has been the consistency of doing it, but then also the accountability piece with a limited staff. Mm. So when you only have a couple of guys that, you know, two sets of eyes or so on the practice, the constant reminders that are needed to do it. And then I would then piggyback that into, yeah, the technique of going, being over the top. There was a game this year where we completely lost our minds going to the glass one time and ball went long and we gave up a run out basket at the absolute worst time in the game when we just lost all focus on that aspect of tagging up. 
the matchup things to me, man, I still feel like we, I need to do a much better job of teaching and coaching this. I haven't given up on it by any stretch. You know, I always get, you know, rejuvenated every off season. I'm like, all right, we're going to just do this better. Cause I love the concept of it. And I, I just really appreciate it, but it is just kind of getting the, the execution of it down and, and the consistency of it, you know, it, it's just the biggest thing. Um, but the, the transition aspect of it, I really don't feel like we've been hurt in transition. It's just been, you know, like it's, you know, you, you're tagging up and the, the whole thing is like, it might not be your half court matchup, but we're going to switch to the matchup when we get a chance. And we haven't really been burned by that a lot. I know with offensive rebounding, you have some like markers that you'd like to get to of like offensive rebounding percentage. What is that percentage? And then how close were you or you felt like your team was? Yeah. 33% is the performance goal that we set for the game, for our game goal for offensive rebound. And we want to get 33% of the opportunities. That's something we track in game. You know, like our assistants are much better at math than I am. So he can, he can figure that out. And so he kind of gives me an update as we're going along, just as reminders for the guys. Um, but yeah, so 33%, I don't think we hit that this year as an average. I think we're maybe right at 30, 31. I think as the year went on, we got worse and worse, which stinks, but you know, it is what it is. You know, but yes, I absolutely think, you know, it's all about getting extra opportunities and extra possessions. So one of the things that we, another game goal of ours is to shoot 48% or more. And I talk about like, okay, what's the process goal to that? Get a lot of offensive rebounds, you know? So if we want to shoot 48% or better, we need to get a lot of offensive rebounds so we can get good putbacks, you know, or kick out threes that are uncontested. You know, so it, it definitely holds in with a lot of other things that we're trying to do. And then again, if we want to hold another performance goal of ours is to hold teams below 40% or less from the field. And if we want to be able to do that, we've got to get back in transition, you know, yep. so we have to stay true to the tag up philosophies of doing that. You mentioned you had a limited staff, so kind of holding the accountability of the tag up, you weren't mm-hmm. able to really maintain, you know, if you say had a larger staff or even if next season you really like i want to emphasize it better i want to teach it better what is the accountability that you'll hold on yourself and the staff to make sure the guys are tagging up every time and going every time i actually think you need if you want to do it right you need a guy that's just going to be your tag up coach like that is consistently watching that on a possession by possession basis because you could do it in every drill any competitive drill, any five and five, any four and four, three on three, whatever you do, you can do tagging up, you know, and, and have a coach, you know, kind of looking at that. That would be, you know, something, but then it's just tracking it, you know, like, again, I think with a bigger staff, you could track it and have statistics for practice. Like what's your tag up percentage, you know, like basically just dumb it down to, did you even try, yeah. you know, to do it? You know, like, are you that guy that's just watching while, you know, like the ball goes up? And then, uh, the, you know, just the mentality of the whole thing without fouling. That is another thing that I think we would get to the end of halves and we would only have like three or four team fouls. And you'd think that that would be a great thing. But to me, it's like, I don't necessarily think that that's great. I want to stay out of the double bonus, you know, so I don't want us, you know, holding and grabbing on drives and stuff like that. But I, I don't see that any reason why you can't get a few over the back or just some, like what you were talking about, Dan, with scrum in and, you know, getting kind of like, you know, jumbled up in the paint, trying to jockey for, you know, that 50-50 position, why you can't get a foul. Like, just sure. be, be physical, you know, like, 
again, another process goal for us when when we talk about that is one, be present and focus on the moment because the presence of that is, hey, the shot went up, I challenged it, what's the next thing? The next thing is get a rebound. And so if you're in the moment and you stay present and in the moment, then that's your job would be to either block out or go to the offensive glass. And so our process goal for that is just to be be present and in the moment and then show some mental and physical toughness. Well, Chad, great stuff. You're off the start, sub, or sit hot seat. <laughs> Thank you for playing. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I didn't use the it depends yeah, yeah. answer. Like yeah. I, <laughs> Uh, man, every time I hear you guys talk about this, it's like, well, it depends. Well, I don't know. Like, you know, it's like- yeah, that's probably the most uh, quoted uh, part of Start Stuff Sit, which we get because it does depend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but thank you for uh, taking a hard stance on some of these. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, Chad, we've got one more question for you here before we close. But before we do, this has been a blast. Thank you very much for your time. And congrats again on a great season. This has been a, a pleasure for us. Yeah, I appreciate this a lot, guys. This is so helpful for so many people. I can't tell you how many things that I've stolen from some of the coaches that you've had on. The impact that you guys make on a weekly basis, you know, goes far beyond, you know, what you think, you know, coaches all over the world. And, you know, just with everything that you guys are doing, I, I just appreciate it a lot. So thank you for having me. Thank you, Chad. Appreciate that. Yeah, thank you, Chad. All right, Coach, so our last question for you. What's one of the best investments that you've made in your career as a coach? Well, I feel like I sort of answered it earlier, but uh, it's definitely seeking out and then committing to working with a sports psychologist. And that is not just for my team, it's for me. And that was the goal when I first started was how can I get level emotionally in a game to where I'm as good a coach as I can be knowing that there's always going to be peaks and valleys and and things like that, but it's basically just a search for awareness. And so her and I meet twice a month in season. And I try to do maybe every three weeks or four weeks out of season where she'll give me, you know, some things that I want to work on ways that I can stretch myself, you know, in the off season, maybe to try to, get to the point where I'm eliminating some of the fears that I have, you know, in coaching, you know, there's there's certain things that I become afraid of and that I avoid. And I think that that's what fear does to you. It causes you to avoid certain things that you know you need to do, you know, as part of the job or whatever. And so she'll challenge me on that kind of stuff. But then she's also, she's also a therapist too. I mean, yeah. so sometimes I just need to vent and you know, and share my thoughts and feelings and she validates them, you know, and does a great job of building me back up. And I tend to be very extreme, like did one thing wrong out of 10, I tend to focus on that one thing. And now I'm a terrible coach when in reality I did nine things right. And so, you know, it's just that mentality of, you know, trying to to focus on the positives. It's just been a game changer for me and for our program in just my enjoyment of my job, my relationships with my players, and then just my overall confidence to know that I am capable of winning a championship and achieving some really cool things throughout my career. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass.
Would we have a name yet to this thing? I have like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. That's good. Let's roll. <laughs> slapping glass.